We're beginning Mark 15 this morning with verses 1 through 32. And if you were with us last week, you remember we had Jesus on trial. He was inside confessing, I am the Christ, while Peter was outside confessing, I never knew him. And then immediately the rooster crowed. As a bit of an aside, I woke up Monday morning. I was a little tired, a little exhausted. I opened my front door and my next door neighbor, Mr. Cogburn, the rooster, greeted me with a cock a doo And I thought, thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. It's a wonderful way to start the day. We're glad we're done with it. We're glad we're done with that awful night. But today we have an awful morning. One of the most painful passages of Scripture, the great misery of our great shepherd of the sheep. And today we only have two focuses that we want to look at. The first is I want us to simply watch Jesus. I just want to follow Jesus every step of the way. And the second is this. It's the statement made by the priests at the end. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Read along with me, if you will, Mark 15, 1 through 32. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews! And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And all those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, 
You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Lord, would you be with us? This is so painful. It's so painful to read, but we must read. And we have to have our eyes open and our hearts open to receive it. Unless your Holy Spirit moves, nothing will happen. And so, Lord, would you do it? Would you work a miracle in our hearts today? We pray this all in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. When I was 16 years old, it's hard to believe it's been that long, the Passion of the Christ first came out, and my dad and I were determined to go see it. We uh, didn't know what to expect. We had our drinks, we got our candy, and we sat down and got ready. And then for the next two hours, we sat there frozen, wiping snot and tears from our faces, holding our breaths, sweating profusely, and I don't think either of us could even look at each other. We couldn't even muster a word to each other. And I had to look away, and I would just sit there with my eyes closed, hearing gasps and snot and and just weeping from everyone, these strangers I didn't even know. And when we left, we both sat in the car for 10 minutes, and we just bawled. We just cried like babies. And that was Hollywood makeup. That was special effects. That was just a mere little actor on a screen, and it was so painful to me. Even thinking about it is one of the most painful experiences emotionally in my life. I can barely imagine how Peter felt sitting down with Mark, and they said, okay, we got to write this. And Peter is being carried by the Holy Spirit. And what he gives us is an extremely brief account, and even it is too much. Even this is too much. It's too much in the sense that there's nothing I can do to stop it. We can, have, we can only sit here, we can read it, we can listen until the end. And the worst part about it is it was all our fault. All that we just read was our fault. Our sin is what caused those terrible events. And so each year I get here and it gets harder and harder and harder for me to read the account of the crucifixion because I'm sinful every year. And the deeper I understand my own sin, the more I grasp God's grace and his mercy and his love for me, what he's done, the more beautiful this event becomes for me. So I don't want to look away. And I don't want you to look away. This is the fountain of endless hope. This is the eternal hope of mankind. By his wounds, we are healed. And so today, our first point, I want us to begin by fixing our eyes upon Jesus. He's the Lamb of God, our substitute. The Bible says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross in our place. First, we see he's bound. He's bound. He's led before Pontius Pilate. What are the charges? Well, if we read the other Gospels, we fill in the gaps here. We know that they say three things. They said he perverts the nation. He forbids us to pay tribute to Caesar. And he claims that himself as king. Last week, we talked about truths and lies. 
and lies hidden in truths. And the first two are lies, but the last one is the truth. Pilate asks him in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? You can, in the Greek, you can see it. The you is very emphasized. He's, he's mocking him. You? You're the king? This is the guy they're saying is the troublemaker? He's the aggressive one? You are the king of the Jews. And Jesus responds, you said so. How ridiculous. This is absurd. Pilate, Pilate steps out of the praetorium. He's elevated and he says, there's no crime here. You guys got this one wrong. This guy is not guilty. It doesn't stop them. Because he goes back in and there's more accusations being lobbed at him. They're aimed at Jesus. And the remarkable thing is he stays silent. Pilate is confronted here. He's amazed by the science. You have to imagine how many people have come before Pilate and they've said, no, not guilty. I didn't do it. You have to imagine. They're vocally, they're excited. They want to they prove their innocence to Pilate. And Jesus stands in stark contrast as quiet and dignified and serene. Why? Why was he silent? We saw this last week. First, he was fulfilling prophecy. In Isaiah 42, 2, it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And then Isaiah 53, 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he's even on the scene. Secondly, Pilate and the priests don't deserve one word from Jesus. Pilate has already declared him innocent. The priests know they're lying. Jesus knows the truth. And so we read four times in the gospel, Jesus opened not his mouth. Before Caiaphas, before Pilate, before Herod, and again before Pilate. And each silent moment, each one speaks louder. It speaks condemnation Upon his tormentors. This is proof of his identity. Again, if you take Pilate's Pilate's account alone, going to all four Gospels, you will hear Pilate say, no guilt, no guilt, no guilt, no guilt. Four times, four different times he proclaims him not guilty. And then read this. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate succumbs to the mob. He succumbs to save himself. This is the sacred record. Not guilty, sinless, sentenced to die. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pilate moves on to a different tactic now in verses 6 through 15. If I just release a criminal... Right? They have this law there for Passover. They can come to me and I'll release a criminal. And I'm going to grab the worst one. I'm going to grab Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist, a zealot. His name, Barabbas, means son of the father or son of the teacher. And so we can, we can apply from this either his father is some sort of religious zealot leader or he's a false messiah. And so you have Pilate going, this is perfect. Jesus, meek and mild or the murderer? It's an, easy, it's an easy choice. Verse 9. He answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? 
still mocking him. For he perceived that it was only out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. You can, I mean, Pilate is just taken aback by this. His plan has failed. Verse 12, Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man called the king of the Jews? What, what am I going to do with this guy? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Many of you will know this already, but crucifixion was saved for the most heinous of criminals. It was meant to be a deterrent to crime. It was, it was extreme. The word excruciating comes from the Latin meaning out of the cross. So they had to invent a word for how awful this was. Mark summarizes. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he's so weak, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The commentator William Hendrickson writes this. He says, the Roman scourge consisted of a short wooden handle to which several things were attached. The end was equipped with pieces of lead or brass or sharply pointed bits of bone. The stripes were laid especially on the victim's back, bared and bent. Generally, two men were employed to administer this punishment, one lashing the victim from one side, one from the other side with the result that the flesh was at times lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and arteries, sometimes even entrails and inner organs, were exposed. Such flogging often resulted in death. Isaiah 53.5, The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. After the scourging, Jesus is led away by the soldiers. It says the whole battalion comes out. They get everybody out to mock and taunt Jesus. They strip him of his outer garments. They throw a royal robe around him. And how terrible it must have been. After his lacerated skin to have the robe thrown upon him. And how quickly that robe must have turned to scarlet. You see, he wore our crimson robe of sin so that we might wear his robe of righteousness. And then next they weave a crown of thorns and they set it upon his head. And you'll remember back in Genesis, the Lord in justice looked at Adam and he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so the second Adam, the great curse bearer, must take it upon himself the very curse of nature, the curse that's upon us. He is put up there, the king of the Jews. And so Christ becomes the king of the curse for all of us. A king must also wield a scepter. We're told in Matthew, they take a reed and they thrust it into his hand and they start to hit him with his own reed, driving the thorns deeper and deeper and deeper into his scalp. I wonder, do they realize This was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 2, 27 says, One day he will wield a rod of iron, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is the King. Finally, they spit upon his face, and they kneeled in fake homage. How darkened is man's mind? How depraved is our heart? And yet, in all of this, How dependable is God's word? 
Listen to what Jesus said. This was back in Mark 10, 33-34. Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Prophecy after prophecy playing out before us. Well, the mockery ends, and they lead him out to be crucified. Our Lord carries his cross. He is our true and greater Isaac. He carries his own wood up Calvary's hill, the wood that will be offered himself as the sacrifice to his father. Christ, in perfect obedience, carried the load of my disobedience. The cross is being carried on those blessed shoulders which were submissive to God in all things. He had come to make men free, and if he was going to accomplish that, he had to be bound. But soon, physically, it becomes too much for him to bear. And so they have Simon of Cyrene come forth. He's compelled from the crowd. But let's stop for a moment. And I want you to consider what we've been reading over the past few weeks. In just the last 15 hours, what has Jesus experienced? Sheer physical exhaustion. Upper room, the betrayal, agonies of Gethsemane, the scattering of the disciples, the torture, the mockery, the denial of Peter, the crowds jeering, the scourging, the abuse by the soldiers. And now they tell him, you must carry this cross. It's unthinkable. And so in verse 21, Simon of Cyrene, he's pressed into the duty and we're not told much about him. He's coming in from the countryside. The most we know about him is his two sons' names. Alexander and Rufus. And you have to imagine Mark knew the sons. Otherwise, he wouldn't have mentioned it. They're familiar to the church. And so we read again in Romans 16, 13. This is from Paul. He says this. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me. And so evidently, the mother of Rufus, the wife of Simon, presumably, had rendered some sort of service to Paul at some point. Again, Scripture doesn't say, so we can't be certain, but it feels like Mark is saying, you know these guys. That was, that was their dad. Go ask them about their father. One final thing I'll say, his name was Simon, but where was Simon Peter? What a silent but painful rebuke this must have been. Dear Peter, Oh, dear Peter, another Simon has taken your place. I want to never miss an opportunity to serve the Lord. Do not miss an opportunity to serve the Lord, lest another Simon take your place. You see, if you are silent, if you will refuse to do something, the Lord says, I've got rocks which are willing to sing. I will raise them up in your place. And so Simon of Cyrene, so little is known about him, but he stands as a representative of the church for all time as we follow behind Christ, carrying his cross. Mark 15, 24. And they crucified him. It's almost written in a whisper. It's written with all the weight of the cosmos behind it. It's written with reverence. And they crucified him. And then they divided his garments among them, 
casting lots for them to decide what each should take. You see, the soldiers threw dice while the Lamb of God was taking away the sin of the world. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We read in Luke 23, 34, Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down at all this happening, and what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now that is a truly remarkable statement in itself, but it was more true of these murderers than it is for us today. We might very well read this and say, those poor soldiers, how ignorant were they? If only they knew. If only they had known. What might they have taken away from Calvary? They just took a few scraps of our Savior's clothes. But you see, the sorrier state is for us who have so much light and so much knowledge. We have no ignorance. And what do we take away from the cross week after week? What do we have to show for ourselves? And so the question for you today is, what will you take away? Will you take away a penitent heart? Will you take away a renewed mind? Will you take away a new love for Jesus Christ? Each individual must ask this of themselves. What will you leave the cross with today? Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. At this point, Jesus is on the cross. He's suffering severe inflammation, the swelling of his wounds. He's in unbearable pain from torn tendons, discomfort from a strained position of his body, a throbbing headache, burning thirst, and his lungs are filling up with fluid as he slowly drowns. Verse 27, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Isaiah fifty-three twelve. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, even in death, between two criminals, he is the friend of sinners. He is the great friend of sinners. And we know from another gospel that one of those, one of those criminals who was, started out reviling him looks at the end and goes, remember me. Remember me. And Jesus says, I will. And beloved, he'll remember you today. He's a friend of sinners. And so we come to the second focus. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. These are devilish words. They're beyond cruel considering the circumstances. Any, any common decency would have shut their mouths and said, let the man die in peace. But I want us to see that this statement, they meant it for mockery, and yet it's so true. It's entirely true. He saved others. They could not deny it. They could not deny the fact. He did save others. Everywhere, Jerusalem, towns, villages, countrysides, he saved Countless people. Paralyzed limbs were made to move. Blind eyes were opened to the light of morning. The mute sung songs of praise. Those long suffering from disease, the bowed over in pain, they were made well. He saved others. Here lies the supreme and central truth about our Christ. He saved others, 
but he could not save himself. Those feet which had traveled long miles for three years were now nailed to the cross. And those hands which were so often quick to bless, to touch, to heal, they were now held fast. And those ears which were always quick to listen, those eyes which blazed with mercy and forgiveness, the ears were deafened, the eyes were fading. And that beautiful voice which said, Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened, heavy laden, I will give you rest. It thirsts, it's parched, and it grows weak. They have destroyed the temple of our Lord. He saved others, but he could not save himself. And now you're sitting there and you want to interject. You want to say, he could save himself. And isn't that the wonder of this statement? He could have saved himself. Him being on the cross was not a result of their victory over him. It was his victory over sin, over Satan, and over death itself. Jesus could easily escape. He could have had diplomacy with Pilate. Pilate wanted a reason to get him off the hook. He he told Pilate as much. John 19.11, Jesus says to Pilate, You have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. But he could not save himself. He could have used the madness of the crowds. If I go to any sporting event right now and I started going, USA, USA, within two minutes I have the crowd. I will own everyone there and they'll all go, USA. He could have done that. But he could not save himself. Finally, he could have called forth all the legions of the angels. All of heaven would have shown up at a mere word. One glance of his eye and power and Pilate would have been vaporized. The mob would have been nothing but ashes. But he could not save himself. Why not? You see, his inability was born out of his great ability. His weakness was the outcome of his strength. He was strong enough to not save himself. Strong enough to remain silent. Strong enough to deny diplomacy. Strong enough to not call forth the mob. And strong enough to keep heaven's armies at bay. King Jesus was cooperating with God the Father. He had set his eyes towards the cross. He is resolute in his love for sinners. He will save sinners. And he could save others precisely because he could not and would not save himself. This was God's glorious plan of redemption for all eternity. It required the cross. And if he would save others, then he must not save himself. And so Jesus travels the divine highway. He would slay death by dying. He would end sin by being made sin. And by not saving himself... He would save others. To put it another way, he was strong enough to be weak enough to die. He steps into the winepress of God's wrath and is crushed for all the sake of the elect, for our iniquities. This was a double determination of God for salvation. It was, he was determined to smite, blast and destroy sin once and forever so it would not bother us anymore. And then he wanted also to heal, lift, and redeem a chosen people for himself. He could not save himself because 
He wanted to save sinners. Every single soul he had touched up to that point was saved in the shadow of the cross. They were saved because he knew one day he would not save himself. And because of this great salvation, this mercy, this grace from our Lord, we know that from Scripture there were Roman centurions who were saved. They were saved right then and there. And then listen in all at the words of Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase. So the word's going out. People are being saved. The Holy Spirit is moving. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Now hear this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The very men who said these. He could not save others. He saved others. He could not save himself. Because he could not save himself, he saved them. That is Tremendous. It's just, it's amazing. And if we would follow after Christ, this is the takeaway. If we would be men and women of the cross and we want to save others, we must not be concerned with saving ourselves. It's true of soldiers on the battlefield. It's true of police officers, firefighters. Everyone who puts themselves in harm's way is not thinking about themselves. They're thinking about other people. Doctors, nurses, Sunday school teachers, stay-at-home moms. It's sacrificial love. It's, it's broken vessels poured out. It's the gospel going forth in power. Victory in the Christian life comes by the way of the cross. If we are to save others, we cannot save ourselves. And the good news is, we don't have to. We don't have to save ourselves because Christ has saved us. Because we have saved us, we are now free to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We are free to pour ourselves out. The world is chasing safety. The world is chasing safety and comfort and entertainment. And as Christians, we need to chase the kingdom of God. Are we strong enough to be weak? Are we mighty enough to submit? And are we tough enough to lay down our lives for the sake of our king? During World War II, General MacArthur wanted an island airfield from which to launch his forces. So he invaded the Indonesian island of Biak. And six months after they secured the island, a chaplain named Leon Maltby arrived to minister to the troops. All he had was a 20 by 60 canvas structure to serve as his chapel but nothing in it except a floor made out of packed coral and a roof made from a yellow parachute. He wanted to serve communion, but he had nothing to serve it with. So he took 50 unused caliber bullets. He didn't want to use old shells that had been used to kill or to harm. He wanted to use new shells. So he took out the lead, the gunpowder, the firing caps. He welded them, pressed them into the right shape, shined them up to be used. Each one took two hours to complete. He made 80 in all. In 1945, Chaplain Maltby sailed into Japan. He was the first Protestant chaplain to enter that country. And he became good friends with a local Japanese pastor. And he used that very same communion cup to serve the first Lord's Supper there. Now that set is on display at the Veterans Museum in Daytona Beach. And there's a sign that says this. The pastor clearly understood the significance of instruments of death 
becoming a symbol of eternal life. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We are about to have a chance to partake and to taste and see and smell that the Lord is good. We are about to see the result of the cross poured out before us. And I ask that you come and you turn your tears of sorrow into tears of joy. This is a thanksgiving table. This is what the Lord has done for us in our place. My sin, your sin, nailed to the cross. You see, he saved others, but he could not save himself. And for that I say, thanks be to God. Let's pray.